Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Zealous State of Mind podcast. You're the Guru of Gains, proudly a part of the West West Network. Today's guest is Cliff Harvey. Cliff Harvey is a clinical nutritionist, naturopath, and researcher. He's the founder of the Holistic Performance Institute. He's co founder of Newsist, where they have those uh, protein powders and and green stuff, which I've used quite a bit. I love that green stuff. He's the author of eight books, and he has his own podcast called the Carb Appropriate Podcast, which I've listened to a few uh, episodes as well. And he's also an all-round weightlifter, which he was world champion at as well. So he's done it all. He's he's, he's an all-round guy, uh, all-round weightlifting I don't know too much about it, but I know they do like one-arm deadlifts, one-arm snatches. So similar to strongman, weightlifting, powerlifting, it's a strength sport, but they, I think they mix up their lifts that they do uh, from meat to meat. But uh, yeah, I have to learn a little bit more about that. But it's a strength, for, strength sport, basically. And we talked about mainly nutrition, just some questions that I had personally that I wanted to know about. We we we'll probably have to do another round round two to talk about training, uh, his writing. We didn't get uh, we 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 didn't get into that. We spent a bunch of time on the nutrition and health, just general health, uh, lifestyle sort of stuff, and also about some tips for combating COVID. Whether it's you know trying to combat getting it, or if, or even if we do get it, and afterwards, just some simple tips that we can do. Uh, to to manage that as best we can so that that was really great a lot of great insights learned a lot learned a lot myself really enjoyed it It was a lot of fun chatting with with cliff harvey and yeah we definitely have to do a round two two with that to cover those other subjects Uh, before we get into the podcast make sure you go check out west west uh the website westwestnet.com all the latest podcasts articles everything that we're up to. So the Afkasi Scoop girls have been getting out some podcasts, 135 playlists. I know Gio with the assessment and Jan have been pumping out. Uh, they pumped out one recently, I think, with the assessment podcast. So some great podcasts, depending on what you're into. There's everything to cover all the, all the bases. All right. That's pretty much it. Hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, be sure to screenshot the episode, share it on your socials. And also, I haven't been asking, but apparently getting, what are they called, reviews or something like that, are pretty important in this game. So I appreciate if if you uh, if you could write a review. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That's pretty much it. Remember to stay ready, whatever you're into, stay ready, and to move every day. Enjoy the show. All right, here we go, guys. Uh, thanks, Cliff, for jumping on the show. Do you reckon you could start us off a bit about your background, uh, where you're from, and how you ended up where you are today? Something like that. <laughs> That'd be cool to start. Thanks. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so I started off in the industry probably about 20, no, 24 years ago now. Um, started off as a 
personal trainer and strength coach. Originally got into that. I mean, it was a bit of a departure from what I was going to be doing. Uh, I, I had always wanted to, through high school, get into landscape architecture and design, you know, Zen-inspired gardens and stuff like that. Um, I've always been into bonsai since I was a little kid. And so that was really where I was heading. Um, but just before, it was in my second to last year of high school, the, uh, the, the coaches of our first 15 at high school came to me and said, if, if you can put on a certain amount of weight, uh, you're captain the first 15. If you don't put on the weight, you, you won't even play. You'll basically be playing second 15 because you're just not big enough or actually not even second 15 to be a weight restricted sort of grade because I was a pretty small sort of kid. Um, so that was obviously a pretty big honor, you know, rugby is like a religion in New Zealand. So I wanted to captain the first 15. So I started looking into how I could do that, you know, how I could get bigger and stronger and just became fascinated with the human body, um, became really fascinated with strength training, but even more so with nutrition. And so I, I went on, I, I put on a lot of size, ended up being, you know, a, a decent size to play and ended up captaining that first 15. And then that really drove me to, to, to look further into human anatomy, physiology, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so the following year, I ended up uh, going to AUT, studying fitness training, strength, uh, strength coaching. Obviously, through that, did, did papers in nutrition, sports nutrition. And uh, on, on leaving that, I started in practice basically straight away as a personal trainer and nutrition coach. And within a very short period of time, I was working with you know, members of the New Zealand Rugby League team, um, you know, professional rugby players and rugby had only just gone professional at that stage. I uh, started working with a lot of Olympians, Commonwealth Games athletes, world champions, all that kind of stuff. And so I was very much focused on performance nutrition at the time. Uh, but also working with people who had, you know, chronic health conditions and particularly in those early days, and it was probably a little bit out of scope looking back, but I mean, it was a little bit the Wild West, you know, quarter of a century ago. And um, <clears throat> I started working with people who had metabolic conditions, people who were with severe obesity. And so we're talking about, you know, the 200 kilo plus club. Yeah. And the, the main reason I started working with those people is not because I had a, a desire to initially, it was more so that these people found me out uh, and, and came to me because they had pretty much been rejected by the, the health system. You know, there wasn't really anywhere for them to go because they were eating less and less over time, you know, to the point where they're basically just starving themselves all the time, being told to go out and just do truckloads of cardiovascular exercise. And they obviously weren't getting results because I had become interested in, in low carb and keto and things like that while I was still studying. And so, again, we're going back a long time here. I thought, well, th this is probably the the time when you would apply that. So I was working with, you know, low carb and keto diets with these people and they were getting fantastic results, dropping, you know, a huge amount of body fat, correcting blood markers and basically losing that, that condition that we know as obesity because it is a defined medical condition, right? And um, despite that, despite these people losing drastic amounts of weight, improving blood markers, all that kind of stuff, there was then this criticism where people were saying, well, you're, you're going to kill these people. <laughs> because you're, you know, they're not eating anywhere near enough carbohydrate. They're eating way too much fat, all this kind of stuff. And so that pretty much solidified my path because I thought, well, it would be unethical to not continue in this process with these people, considering they were getting such great results, purely because the, the perceptions of some other people saying, hey, you're, 
you're going to harm these people when all the evidence said the complete opposite. So I went on and kept practicing as a nutrition coach, uh, studied other things as well, mainly because of some, some personal health stuff. Uh, I was thinking about going on and doing postgrad in nutrition, but at the time there really wasn't any avenue for me to do that because I, I was interested in what I began to call the carb appropriate spectrum all those years ago. Mm. And so I was interested in higher protein diets and lower carb diets and things, not as an exclusive way to do things, but as part of a spectrum of how people could approach nutrition. And there was obviously no appetite for that, excuse the pun, at uh, most of the major universities. And at the, around the same time, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so I started looking a lot more holistically at, at my lifestyle and how I was eating and living and all that kind of stuff. And because of that, because of looking at things a little bit more holistically, I took a bit of, bit of a diversion and studied naturopathy instead. So I did an undergrad in naturopathy. And it wasn't until many years later that I circled back and did my master's and doctorate in nutrition. Uh, and so nowadays, I, I still see some people in clinical practice, but it's typically, you know, I have a couple of high-level athletes I work with. Um, I have a number of clients that I work with who have, you know, severe and complex health conditions. But most of what I do nowadays is research and education. So I have an institute where we train nutrition coaches, sports nutritionists, and um, clinical nutritionists. Yeah. And obviously I'm involved in university research and into that carb appropriate spectrum, but also more recently, as a lot of us are, I've been um, brought in to, to, to help do research on uh, nutrient and food interactions with COVID, which is super interesting. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, done a lot. Well, done a lot. I just How was that back. for an elevator pitch, brother? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> good uh, time efficiency there. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Flowed really well. Just going back to the carb thing, like you were a bit of a head of the curb there. How did you sort of figure that out? Was that just for your own experience or some research? Because it's it's pretty common now, but 25 years ago, it, was, it would have been really new, eh? a new sort of thought. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was really new and it was, I tend to take an inductive approach to most things. What I mean by that is rather than having an idea about how things are and then trying to find the research to support that, I tend to sort of try and wherever possible, go back to a blank slate and then look at what the evidence tells us and or what's plausible. And so basically, if we backtrack a little bit, when I was at university that first time around, we would often go to, or we, we would go to sort of anatomy and physiology class and we would learn certain things about particularly the roles of, of nutrients in the body. You know, so you would learn generally that protein is not really used a lot for fuel. Um, a little bit is, but mostly it's used for structures throughout the body. Obviously, every you know cell, tissue, organ is built on an amino acid matrix, so it's all built on protein. Uh, we would learn that fat provides both fuel and structure, and carbohydrate is pretty much just fuel. You know, while there are some structural components and glycoproteins and things throughout the body, it's pretty much there as a fuel source. So, the vast majority, almost all of it, is there as a fuel for certain tissue and for higher intensity activity. But then we would go next door to our nutrition class where we're told how to begin to advise people and they'd always put carbohydrates first. Mm. And so when we started to work with cases and start to think about, well, how might we apply this to us or say to an athlete, often in applying, you know, that 65, 70, 75 plus percent calories from carbohydrate, if we did that first, there wouldn't be enough 
to preserve a minimum threshold of fat to preserve hormonal balance and prevent overreaching overtraining. Uh, there certainly wouldn't be enough to provide optimal levels of protein as the emerging research was beginning to show. And so that didn't make sense to me. So I'd ask questions, you know, what, why are we prioritizing carbohydrates? Surely we should prioritize protein and fat and then whatever's left, mm. depending on the individual, is allocated to carbohydrate. And that simply was too great a shift for people at the time. Although nowadays, you know, you read a lot of sports nutrition experts, a lot of bodybuilding strength nutrition experts, and they're basically following that approach. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think I invented the approach, but I, I think I was probably one of the first, particularly down here to really promote that idea. And that's where that carb appropriate spectrum came from. Um, and was, I, I asked the question or inconvenient questions so many times that eventually they sent me to the <laughs> dean and the dean um, said, you know, you've done enough to pass, but don't go back to class. Um, so I was practically kicked out, although I, I got a pass uh, for my studies. Yeah. So that, that's where it all questions. Asking too many questions. I mean, this is only a couple of years after being kicked out of high school too, so. You're far up. <laughs> so I got kicked out of high school, kicked out of university, eventually ended up back at the university doing um, doctoral research, and now I'm a, you know, doctoral researcher. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense how, um, like, the way you put it in terms of how you came to it, finding out about what protein does and what fat does and what carbs, you know, and it's it's interesting how no one else sort of, or not no one, but not many people Sort of, sort of, same sort of thing as you. It's it's interesting, eh? If they're, if they're studying that and not picking up on it. Yeah, I, I mean, and that does surprise me because it is the most plausible way to look at things, right? Yeah. When we look at those roles and functions, but I think one thing that happened was people were overtaken by the protein research. So I think most of the shift didn't come from low carb and keto per se. Like they were quite big back in the nineties, but only big within very small niche communities. Mm. So, you know, we had obviously the, the revival of the Atkins diet. Uh, we had things like Morita Pascali's uh, anabolic diet. We had Dan Duchesne's body opus, you know, all these sorts of movements, but they were very restricted to, I guess what we'd now call biohackers, but those biohackers weren't like they are now. It wasn't Silicon Valley types. It was more so your biohacking bodybuilders and strength athletes. Um, but at the time as well, there was a lot of emerging research on, on protein and how the, the standard guidelines that we had weren't providing anywhere near enough protein to optimize health and performance. Mm. So although you know the, the recommended daily allowances provide enough protein to survive, they yeah. certainly don't provide enough to thrive. And so as we started to, those of us who were aware of that research were starting to apply it, as we were starting to really increase those protein intakes, that's when th there wasn't enough left for the carbs. Mm. And so that's what I think switched, you know, myself and many others are, around to a different way of doing things. Uh, whereas those people who, who always saw the primacy of carbohydrate at the, at the expense of all other things uh, were obviously a little bit on the back foot when that came about. And so it took a little bit of time for things to change. Of course, now things have changed massively and, and things that I was doing that were controversial back in the 90s you know not not just in nutrition but in in the way i lived you know getting kicked out of school for wearing a skirt you know that that kind of stuff is just normal now is that part of being scottish or something like that or no it was just a, a, a thing we we had a um we used to wear <laughs> now what was this we we didn't wear a uniform in our final year of high school which school uh, i was a christian oh. yeah and so that's on the north shore um we didn't wear a uniform 
in our final year back in those days they do now um, probably because of the way we were uh, but because we didn't wear a uniform a mufti day came around it's like a um fundraising oh thing. okay yeah, yeah yeah so on the mufti day and i was you know pretty alternative anyway i used to wear nail polish and you know we'd, we'd wear makeup from time to time and all sorts of <laughs> stuff just because we wanted to you know yeah. it was just stuff we wanted to do so we we thought we'd do it um, despite the fact that I was kind of ostensibly a jock in one sense, I was pretty alternative in, a, in another sense. And so uh, me and a couple of the guys from the First 15 decided that as a bit of fun, we would wear a skirt on Mufti Day and, you know, obviously pay our Mufti fee and whatnot and contribute to this um, charity stuff we were doing. But when we turned up wearing skirts, the powers that be hit the roof. Um, so they said, well, you can either take the skirts off or you can go home. And so I was given a pretty easy choice. I said, oh, fine, I'll go home then. That sounds much better. <laughs> but then um, the, the media got a hold of it and ended up being on the news and all oh. sorts and things were misconstrued. You know, Leighton Smith saying that I was some, you know, homosexual activist and all this kind of stuff, yeah. which which I wasn't, but I certainly thought it was funny just because I'm not gay, but I certainly thought it was funny that it was cast into this sort of light of homophobia and bigotry. Um, you know, which is obviously one of the reasons why we used to do some weird and wonderful things because we wanted to shine a light on how ridiculous some of the shit was. Yeah. Anyway. That's, that's funny how, you know, you've, you've got this education side and then another like rebellious side to you sort of thing. How, how was, um, was your parents, were they uh, pretty hard on you in terms of education and that sort of thing? Or you sort of had a lot of freedom? I had a lot of freedom. You know, I, I never... I, I did well, I did very well at school, mm. but not because I was particularly diligent or anything like that. I, I just had, uh, I was lucky enough to have a good memory. I was lucky enough to be able to think about concepts and understand them quite, quite easily and quite quickly. And my folks uh, had done a really good job of just educating me through life when I was really young. You know, there was the sort of parents who if I asked them a question, they wouldn't just say, oh, go ask your mom or, you know, go ask your dad or I don't know kind of thing. Or if they didn't know, they we would, you know, get a book and go and look at it. We'd go to the library or whatever, you know. So they were very there to answer questions whenever I had them. But more importantly than that, we would just do fun stuff. And when you're a kid, you don't realize you're learning. Mm. You know, my old man's a tradie and um, he knows a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so we'd be out on the farm, and he'd say, "Oh, you want to know how to how to measure that tree?" It's like, yeah, that sounds cool. How how would you measure a tree if it's stuck in the ground? Well, here's the way you do it, and so you start to learn trigonometry, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You start yeah. to learn quite advanced mathematical stuff, but it's just because you're a kid who's interested in everything. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't say that I was a scholar at school. Uh, it was more so that I I had a good brain and a good, you know family life and a good upbringing all that kind of stuff hmm. uh, but outside of that I was probably more on the outer at um at school rather than being one of those sort of fastidious scholars yeah, yeah. um you said you had a good memory I, I wanted to ask a question about sort of genetics like I, I feel like since I was as far back as I can remember I've always been hungry and when you said you had a you know good memory how how much does like you know people they get hungry. They talk about it. Is that, how much is that true in terms of genetics and nutrition? You know, yeah, the, the, yeah, that side of things. Is that is that a real thing or not? Like, 
Well, is that an environment here? How does that how does that play out? Yeah, and that's the age-old question, you know, is it nature-nurture? I think there, there's obviously a, a big genetic component. <clears throat> and there are certain things that, you know, genetically or on that foundational level, we're not going to be able to get around. Like take the take the person who has celiac disease, for example. It's not like it's possible, maybe, that that could shift, but it's not likely. In all probability, that is the way it is. So that person shouldn't eat gluten, mm. you know. And that's going to be one of those things that's fairly genetically ingrained. Uh, whereas we would probably look at most things on a spectrum, right? You have genetic tendencies towards certain things. So it might be genetic tendency towards, um, you know, even things like memory and cognition, or it might be genetic tendencies towards particular conditions, might be genetic tendency towards, say, um, you know, being with overweight or obesity type thing. Um, but then obviously there's that epigenetic crossover where our environment causes certain genes to express or not, or express more, or genetic patterns to be expressing more. Um, and then obviously outside of just the epigenetics in terms of gene genes being switched on or off or genes, you know, expressing more or less or gene patterns expressing more or less. There's just the, the gross uh, overarching stuff that we do in terms of our lifestyle. Yeah. And, and so we looked at that, for example, when I was pursuing my doctoral studies, we were really interested in certain, a certain gene marker that we thought could, could help to tell people what their carb tolerance was and how much carbohydrate they should be eating in a day. And we abandoned the research because the more we looked into it, the more it, it didn't really matter. You know, while people might have genetic tendencies towards maybe greater or lesser carb tolerance, over time, there was little difference between diets that people follow mm. generally. You know, as long as it contains certain key factors, a good diet is a good diet and people will get results. They might get slightly better results on one diet as compared to another, but they're not really that different. And the biggest factors that tended to affect, uh, you know, let's say carb tolerance, how much carbohydrate people should eat, were not necessarily their genetic underpinnings. It was more so what they had done over their lifetime. So we certainly saw in, in a lot of instances what we do over a lifetime to condition our physiology to, to certain ways of being is certainly more important, um, especially with relation to lifestyle, mm. you know, disorders of lifestyle, um, certainly more important than the genetic stuff underpinning it all. Mm. Uh, no, I found it interesting because I had a couple of guys I worked with and they would barely eat all day and they still like stayed relatively lean and they're all right energy wise. But for me, I had, to, I did always did better when I ate like four or five, five times a day. And I have tried, um, you know, doing a bit of keto uh, or just low carb, you know, and, or doing a bit of intermittent fasting. And I just didn't do too well. You know, I was always thinking about yeah. food and I was hungry. So it was just more from observation and experience. That's why I asked the, the question. And that's probably a good example of where your, your underlying sort of genetic picture, your, genes into into action which is really that sort of epigenetic crossover and your you know behavioral tendencies whether those are physiological or not um you know there's this idea of psycho neurophysiology it's it's everything playing in together you know the mind the body your environment all that kind of stuff they all influence how you are and that that's important stuff because you know you've identified that maybe following a really low carb approach or intermittent fasting just doesn't serve you all that well. Now that, that's something we've looked into a lot and, you know, fasting is such a popular thing nowadays. Yeah. It's, there's a real tendency for people to say, well, you should fast because it gives you all these benefits. 
Now, the, the first thing I'd say is that a lot of those benefits, I think people misunderstand. It's not to say that those benefits aren't there, but people misunderstand how they work or what they are. You know, the people throw around clever terms like autophagy and mitophagy, depending on which school you went to, autophagy. Autophagy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they throw around terms like that without necessarily understanding what that really means functionally. But if we then take it back a step, I would tend to look at fasting and low-carb keto as being really affected by this idea of auto-regulation, right? What I mean by auto-regulation is a little bit different to auto-regulation and training. That's a different concept. When we're talking about auto-regulation and nutrition, I'm not sure if I even sort of coined the term for nutrition, but I can't remember anyone speaking about it before I was. I don't think so. It's this idea that what we're eating and how we're eating influences how much we eat. Mm right? So we tend to think about it the other way. I need to say, increase what I'm eating or reduce what I'm eating. But the way we're eating and, and what we're eating, how we're eating in terms of our structure can drastically change the volume of food that we eat. Mm. So for example, the, the biggest impact of fasting is not because of those, you know, things that people are thinking about as the major benefit. The primary benefit is that it helps people to eat less. Mm. Right. You, let's say you're eating four meals a day and you suddenly cut down to two. Even if you think you're eating more at those meals, you're highly likely to be eating less overall. And so it's a way to regulate energy. It's a way to regulate your calories. So that's an auto-regulation technique, right? If you're overeating, a way to auto-regulate your energy intake down would be to eat one less meal. Yeah. Hey, you're fasting and you're getting great results. Cool. So you sort of pin it on fasting, but in fact, it's come down to some degree to energy balance. Mm. Similarly, if people eat low carb, they tend to eat less overall. They tend to eat less calories because they're not getting that driver from carbohydrate that tends to have us eating more, right? All of which sounds good. However, if you happen to be someone who has a really high hunger drive, who has a really high requirement for energy, who does better eating a higher calorie intake, auto-regulating your energy intake down is not going to be a good thing. Mm. So you might want to go the other way, although most people in, in modern society are probably eating in excess of calories, there's a significant minority of people who are chronically under eating. And so for those people chronically under eating, we wouldn't want to say, well, fast, because it's got these other health benefits. Oh, it's right. like that pales in comparison to being properly nourished and properly fed. Yeah. So for those under eaters, it's more important maybe to, rather than dropping a meal out, maybe add another meal in. Mm. Or maybe add some carbohydrate in because that's probably going to help you to increase your energy intake. Yeah. So assuming overall that people are eating a diet that is, you know, and by diet, I mean little d, not like big d, like following a diet, just the compendium of food that you're eating. Um, eating a diet that is based on natural, unrefined foods that's replete in, you know, protein, essential fatty acids, those types of things. Assuming those things are true, then there are auto-regulation techniques we can use to either increase or decrease how much we're eating. Um, and that's a far easier and more sustainable way to go than, you know, having to constantly count your calories. Mm. Oh, thanks for that. Also, you touched on uh, autophagy or, or how, however you say it. Uh, I heard on a podcast, I've, I've heard about it and read about it a little bit, but not nothing too in depth, but uh, I was a league player and he, he said he had a, a back, bad back injury and he had something floating around and he fasted and he doesn't know for sure, but he reckons that his body, you know, needed resource 
and use that that part that was floating around in his back. And he and he said he's felt great since. So, I mean, we don't know for sure, but he rec- he puts it down to that. That was the only thing that was different. Yeah, is that how does? Yeah, can you tell us about that in terms of like injuries and how we can sort of heal our body? Is that true or what, what is that? Yeah, it can be. I mean, um, there are, I can't remember exactly the temporal sort of differences, but there are some benefits to wound healing from fasting. So long as on balance over a you know long enough period of time, you're not too energy restricted. Because obviously if you're too energy restricted, you're not going to have enough fuel to optimally you know, p- provide for that healing. Um, and you obviously don't want to be without ample protein and things like that for too long. But fasting can certainly help with, with wound healing and repair. And it does that by helping to modulate inflammation. Mm. So there, there have been studies done on that. There have been studies showing that you know fasting for, say, 14 or 16 hours will help um, modulate inflammation. And what I, why, why I say modulate rather than just reduce is inflammation is really important. Right. And so particularly as part of the, the wound healing process or the process of healing injuries or as part of your immune cascade, you know, to, to viruses and things like that, we need to have that inflammation, those inflammatory processes occurring. But obviously they can be excessive. They can be exacerbated by a poor diet and lifestyle. They can be excessive for too long a period of time. And that's when the body isn't properly modulating its inflammation. And so by modulating inflammation, it means if it is excessive, it's more likely to be brought down to appropriate levels, but it's not necessarily going to suppress it past where you want it to be. And so that has actually been studied in respect to fasting because they wanted to see, well, if we give mice a virus and fast them, hopefully they'll still have the correct immune and inflammatory responses to beat the virus. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, fasting would not be a good thing if you were exposed to a pathogen. Um, but that wasn't the case where they required that immune inflammatory response, it was still there. However, it was better modulated. So that's really the the benefit. So it could be that that helped. You know, it could be that autophagy or autophagy, as I say, um, helping to clear out, you know, junk tissue and things like that was was part of the process. Um, It can also be that when people fast, they are simply taking things out because they're not eating anything for a period of time. Right. Taking things out that would otherwise be maybe inflammatory for them, or maybe allergens they hadn't recognized, things they're intolerant to, or maybe they're just eating, you know, a diet that's kind of a bit poor and it's not really helping them. Yeah. Cut those things out and you often feel a heck of a lot better. Yep. I was just about to ask about inflammatory from from foods and its effect on our recovery from are you sort of touching on it now? Uh, from like training and niggles, you know, everyone that plays sports or competes in something has niggles in that. Like how big is that? How, how big, you know, cause you, most people that yeah. train hard or play sports, they're like, they, you know, they like to let their hair down here and there. Like how much of an effect does like blowing out on, um, you know, burgers and sweets and all that sort of stuff in terms of inflammation and recovery? It's a good question because I think it, it depends on the individual and what their own threshold is, you know, how good their underlying immune inflammatory processes are, how appropriate the rest of their lifestyle is, because there's lots of things that affect this, obviously. Mm. You know, I've done a lot of um, research reviews, which I publish on my my site, on all sorts of stuff. And one of the things that I really went down the rabbit hole on was the bi-directional nature between, you know, sleep, stress, food, training, you know, movement, strength training in particular, um, social media exposure, all this kind of stuff, right? 
And they're all bidirectional. In other words, they all affect one another. And they all have impacts on immune and inflammatory function. And so how much someone would need to, say, reduce those foods that would might be considered pro-inflammatory in their diet would depend on everything else within the diet. But yes, you know, eating a diet that is appropriate to modulating inflammation is critical because we, we want to have optimized immune and inflammatory responses in the presence of injury or even, you know, normal training responses. You know, we want to be able to clear out damaged tissue, junk tissue, and then have that immune inflammatory response go back to normal baseline hmm. uh, rather than being expressed for too long because a hyper-inflammatory response is going to result in increased pain, you know, um, increased prevalence of joint problems and things like that, which I think we've all experienced. Um, there's, there's probably also some age-related differences as well. And there's, there's, you know, lots of things going on on a cellular level around that. But, you know, you and I would probably know Maybe, maybe you don't, but I certainly know that if, if I went out when I was younger, you know, lifting competitively and stuff like that and had four beers or six beers or eight beers, I'd probably be pretty okay the next day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas now I don't really drink a lot. I probably have two beers on any given night as a max, just because I know if I have more than that, like that's fine. But if I have more than that, the next day my joints are screaming. Mm. So there, there are certainly inflammatory things that start to build up on us over time. And it's probably also embedded a little bit in how our body responds to previous injuries. Mm. You know, there, there's a lot of mind body stuff. I know I'm probably rambling here, but there's a lot of mind body stuff associated with that too, where, you know, pain is a response or it's part of injury response. That's there to stop us from further damaging a joint more or less, or, or you know, the, the injured part of the body. So if we have a joint injury, for example, the pain is really there to tell us that it's, it's injured, mm. right? And so don't put weight on it. You know, don't, no, don't do that range of motion. But in a chronic sense, it's interesting because the, the injury is typically healed, but sometimes the pattern of pain carries on. So we have to ask, well, why is that pattern of pain carried on? It could be due to inflammation or other aspects of a poor diet. Uh, it could be due to a poor sort of immune inflammatory modulation based on other stuff. We might just be way too stressed, you know, uh, or it could be that there are some mind body or what we might call psycho neurophysiological cascades happening where the body's still trying to protect you. Right. So I've had some pretty bad back injuries through weightlifting. Yeah. And it's really weird now because if I go to a powerlifting comp or a weightlifting comp, as soon as I go in there and sit down to watch it, my back starts to seize up and get sore. And I wonder, it's getting a little bit better now. I've done a lot of work through it, but I wonder if what it's saying is, dude, don't do that. That's how I've injured myself in the past, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Because it is a signal from the body mm. to not do the thing that put you at risk. Right. Oh. And it's crazy. If you look at low back pain, which affects most people at some stage in their lives, and a lot of people have very serious back pain for long periods of their lives. So it's a massive impactor of public health and quality of life, right? If you look at the research on low, low back pain, there's very little association between pathologies of the spine and pain, right? So in other words, the injuries that people have had, you know, the bulging disc or that kind of stuff, it actually has very little association with pain. It seems to be that psychosocial factors like fear have a greater association with low back pain. So mm. that goes to show it's not just about the injury, it's about the whole lifestyle. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Just going to the back pain a little bit. I, I tweaked my back uh, when I was in Canada. I was on a trip, and um, I I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I heard some stuff and listened to you know podcasts and stuff about how sometimes the injury can be due to like stresses from different parts of your life or something that's missing or you know that plays a role in it. And at the time, I was you know I was on a trip with it was a powerlifting trip and. Uh, and I was I was with my wife, you know, the girl that was powerlifting, her husband and my brother and that. But anyway, I was sort of doing my own thing with, with um, just training and stuff like that. I wasn't like being a douchebag, but I was sort of just doing my own thing. And I reckon like the back injury was like, a, it was a thing saying like, stop and, you know, spend time with your wife. Because she was pregnant at the time. Um, like, be present and because from then on i couldn't do anything like without her yeah. <laughs> and like i'm like that's what i sort of reflected on and i'm like how much is that true and i've heard from other people that there is that sort of thing about some other aspect of your life playing a role in your back injury what do you think about that is that is that rubbish or <laughs> no I, I think it's um it's very clear that that happens and the, the the reason i think i can say that with some certainty despite the fact that the evidence isn't particularly strong. Now, the, the evidence isn't particularly strong in a lot of these areas because it's very difficult to study mind-body sort of interactions and what's happening. But think about it in respect to the placebo effect, right? We all know it occurs and we correct for it in studies because we do placebo-controlled studies and things, but we expect for there to be an effect from something that shouldn't have an effect. Mm. Now, because we know it and because it's so accepted, we kind of forget about it. But I've been talking about it with you know, my, my colleagues, researchers, and we really want to look deeper into some of the mechanism behind it because it's fascinating. Like what is actually happening when you tell someone they're taking steroids and they're not, and they still put on four kilos of muscle in a week? <laughs> like on a mechanistic level, what's happening, right? Yeah. And so that goes to show that there is an enormously powerful component of you know, that mind body, or if we want to put it in more scientific terms to make it more palatable for people, that psycho neurophysiology. So we know that these things occur in certain instances. Uh, we also know that, you know, the immune system, for example, can be trained to be allergic or not to certain things. You know, that's where a lot of this research originally started in the field of psycho neuroimmunology. Um, but we also know from like the back pain research, for example, that, hey, there's pretty poor association with in chronic terms, like if, if, if you get an acute injury, of course, it's going to be sore and it's because of the injury. But in chronic terms, because there are so many other factors around it, psychosocial factors, so it's more about your you know, social interactions with people that are affecting it, then we know there's something going on there. Now, it makes complete sense, I think, because if the body is trying to stop you from doing something, it, it will do that because at that point, it becomes a survival imperative. And those deepest processes of the mind are really just there to help keep you safe. And they have no, there's no real uh, attention to what is in the future mm. based on us. It's only about what is going to keep you safe now. And so if you really believe that the best thing for you to be doing is spending time for your wife or whatever, then <laughs> hey, it kind of makes sense that your your body is going to impede the other things you're doing so that you have to do that. Yeah. You know, and I, I quite often, now stress and tension play a big role so that there are, you know, a lot of theories out there around uh, injury and chronic pain and how that is, you know, pretty much resulting from underlying stress tension. So it's sort of that psychosocial stress becoming physiological stress and tension. 
And I think there's, you know, there's pretty good evidence for that. I think we could be quite, quite comfortable in the fact that there's a lot more going on than just the body. And I think uh, mind-body medicine, maybe along with psychedelics, are going to be two of the biggest areas of, of research coming up, not just for health conditions, but I think just for quality of life uh, and for, for living better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It's, in, it's, it's interesting stuff, that stuff, eh? Yeah. You're talking about you sort of like the whole, uh, you know, the by by uh, relationship. In terms of like a lot of uh, people talk about uh, nutrition playing a role into, you know, performance and exercise like that. Um, some of the stuff I looked into was talking about exercise playing a role into how you digest and absorb food. It's something that's not as talked about uh uh, that's why I have like a little thing that I always post on my Instagram stuff like move every day because I mean there's multiple reasons but it's, it helps with your digestion and you know absorb yeah can you talk about that a little bit I don't mean I just know a little bit but if you could dive into that a little bit more oh big time I think you know one of, one of the bigger things that affects people's digestion and therefore they're, they're what they consider to be their gut health you know whether they have IBS and things like that there's lots that go into it but one of the big impactors is is not moving Right, we sit down, like I'm sitting down at the moment, I'm in a chair, my hip flexors are probably tightening up, yeah. I'm probably going to start to slouch, you know, contract down on the visceral, that kind of stuff. And it slows motility of, of the bowel. When we are able to stretch, you know, and release everything and have um, greater movement, there's, there's sort of a, a releasing of the viscera as well. We get better gut motility. Now, it's not just because of stretching out and things like that. It's also because when we move and we develop greater levels of work capacity and resilience, our immune and inflammatory responses are better. Mm. Our whole sort of biochemical picture ends up being better as a result. And it also, because things are bidirectional, it starts to play into everything else. You know, So for example, if you sleep well, you're more likely to, to want to train. But if you train, you're more likely to sleep better. If you train, you're probably more likely to eat better. And if you sleep well, you're more likely to eat better. Conversely, if you don't sleep well, you're probably going to be more inclined to snack and to crave sugar and things like that. Like this is all in the research, right? So we know this stuff occurs, but I completely agree with you that building the habit of movement is, is critically important. And most people don't do that despite the fact that they might exercise. Right. And so we know that it's really important for long term health to not just exercise and do your couple of sessions a week in the gym or whatever, but to also get in a critical mass of, let's say, seven to eight thousand steps a day minimum. Right. So that, that's part of it. But I even think with um, with maybe resistance training, whether it be calisthenic or weightlifting, whatever, I think there is a benefit to doing that more frequently than less. And the benefit is that for a lot of people, because we are relatively sedentary, we sit behind a desk. You know, I sit behind a desk a lot. I type, I write, research, all this kind of stuff. If that's all I did, and occasionally, like every couple of days, went into the gym, or twice a week, as a lot of people do, go to the gym and just hammer myself and try and go to complete max, it's kind of like you're going from zero to 100, but only really, really, Right. So the way the body responds to that is it's not really, it's, it hasn't become acclimated to doing the work. It's like you're sitting on your butt all day and then suddenly every now and then you're running for your life from a tiger, 
really super stressful, right? Whereas if over time you'd built the work capacity of doing a little bit each day, it wouldn't be so stressful when occasionally you do go to max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And you wouldn't necessarily, like, I'm not a big fan of going to max, like max attempts, max lifts and things very frequently anyway, because I don't think you need to. You know, you, you train the, the body in the way that you train anything else. Strength is a skill, and the skill is to basically move really well under load. And so you want to move really well under load, not move really poorly under load to max every now and then. You know, so I dig um, training frequently. Mm. I think it's, it's, and often it works really well with clients. You know, a lot of the work that I've done, like currently I'm working with long COVID patients, for example, a lot of the work I've previously done is with uh, people who have post-viral fatigue, which is pretty much what we're seeing in long COVID, but they might have extreme post-viral fatigue. So chronic fatigue syndrome, they basically are completely wiped out, right? A lot of the methodology for those people comes from the sort of pseudoscience of what people call adrenal fatigue. And they say, oh, you, you, know, you shouldn't do any hard work. You should only walk or do yoga or whatever. And I, I have a completely different philosophy because the, the number one, the research doesn't tell us that. The research tells us that lifting relatively heavy, doing grind lifts, but with really low volume is probably the most, most effective for getting those people back to full function. Mm. But the thing is, the volume has to be so low because they simply can't handle a higher workload. But what I often do then is get people doing ridiculously low levels of, of activity, but every day, yeah. right? So it might start with, for example, one push-up, one squat, and I don't know, a 10-second plank, something like that, right? That's it. But the next day, try and do two. Right. And for most people, that's still way within capacity to the point where it's kind of like, what? I'm doing one push up. Yeah, yeah, you are. But you're going to build consistently over time so that eventually, let's say you can keep adding one rep and maybe you can't add one rep every day. But let's say you could for 30 days. Most people are in pretty good like shape, strength, physical function if they can do 30 push ups unbroken. I know that may not sound like a lot to someone like you, but for a lot of people, nah, it's that's lot. way outside the norm. Right. And so it's just a matter of slowly building that threshold. Um, and, and again, you don't want to do that to max because you go to max, especially mm. if you're someone who's suffering from chronic fatigue, you, you hyper respond to those max attempts because it's kind of like, oh shit, we're about to die. Let's put everything into this and there's no reserve left. Mm. It's really about coaxing the body up so it becomes stronger and stronger over time. And you'll know that from your lifting, you know, any, strength athlete will know that that you you seldom go to failure you're just building base a lot you know over time and then occasionally you're putting in those max attempts mm. yeah that's awesome um before we get into like the some i guess personal question just about your own stuff one more one more nutrition one just uh because covid is <coughs> everyone what, what are a couple of things that we can do simple things that we can do i guess yeah, to help our immune system, whether we get it or not, or, you know, just in general, yeah. simple things that we can do, you know, every day. It's a really good question. And, you know, we don't have, we're only just starting. The research that I'm involved in is really only just starting. However, I have done quite a lot of work already with people who have, have had long COVID, right? So we've got a little bit, of, I've got a little bit of experience there. Um, and there are things that we kind of know anyway, 
Now, if we go back to the early days of the pandemic, it was really frustrating because you had some people on one side who are saying, well, because there's no research been done yet, nothing that you do in, in diet and lifestyle is going to play any role <laughs> in COVID. Yeah. You've got others who are out there saying, you know, take this special bloody, you know, supplement or take this berry or whatever, and you, it's going to prevent you from getting COVID. Like either extreme is kind of ridiculous. But if we take a pragmatic evidence-based approach to it, we know that, yeah, there are things that are, are critical for immune function, right? And there are often also things that people are, or that are insufficient in the diet. So we know, for example, in the New Zealand diet that around 25% of people and 45% of guys don't get enough zinc in the diet. Zinc's a critical cofactor for immune function, Yeah, right? And a lot of the effects that we're seeing from not just COVID, but potentially adverse effects of vaccines and long COVID result not necessarily just from the, the virus, well, not from the virus, but from the, the immune and inflammatory response itself. So it's like cytokine storm type stuff, uh, neurological damage and inflammation or inflammation resulting from that that's causing neurological damage and all sorts of things. So it's really the, um, the immune response, which is actually doing the damage. It's also saving you from the virus, but it's doing some of the damage as well. So again, going back to what we talked about with fasting, it's really important to have properly modulated immune and inflammatory responses. You want to give your body the best chance to cope with any immune challenge, whether that is from the virus itself or from the vaccine, because the vaccine is an immune challenge. My opinion is it's far safer than the virus, and that's why I'm pro-vaccination. But I'm also not saying because I'm involved in research and I know it, that some people are experiencing pretty severe adverse events. But our hypothesis is that it's because it's not because of, but a cofactor contributing to it is, you know, poor diet and lifestyle. Hmm. And as we're starting to see some data around it, it looks like certain things like vitamin D, zinc, selenium, uh, preformed vitamin A, you know, they're really important. So what can we do? The, the most important thing is to, you know, focus on a diet that is based on unrefined foods. And that might seem, seem way too simplistic, but that's really one of the critical well, one of the critical factors in nutrition, right? It's probably the one thing that most nutrition research was, will agree on. You know, might, we might debate all sorts of stuff, but we, we all understand, I think, that a diet that's really high in what we call ultra-refined, you know, these modern ultra-refined foods is, is not helpful. So getting back more to unrefined is, is better. We want to make sure that we're replete in protein because a lot of people are way underserved in protein and protein surprisingly has a pretty big effect on uh, immune and inflammatory responses as well. It's one of the you know, critical cofactors in overreaching and overtraining. And so we want to make sure we have enough protein. We want to make sure we have enough omega-3s. And if people aren't able to get those from the diet, then fish oil is a great addition in terms of supplements. We want to make sure we eat plenty of vegetables. You know, it's the stuff our mama told us. It was right. Um, but if we're not always sure that we're getting all that we require from diet, then I'm a big fan of a good multi as well, because a, a good quality multi should cover the bases for some of those critical nutrients, you know, like vitamin D, like zinc, like preformed vitamin A in particular, and selenium, which is typically low in New Zealand soils. So those are some of the key things. And I think if you're following a diet that is, you know, pretty good in general, you're taking a multi, you're taking a fish oil, 
Um, you know, maybe you take a protein supplement if you're not able to get the protein in easily, just for convenience, but not necessary. Um, then all those things are going to help. Then outside of that, uh, if there was any concerns that, you know, you, you had other issues or you needed someone to look deeper into it, then that's when you want to consult with someone who knows what they're doing and someone who can, um, you know, look at your blood results, see if there's any further fine tuning required for that. Mm. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense and it's quite clear. So, no, thank you very much for, for sharing that. Some great articles. And again, I'll, I'll reiterate that that's kind of, it's irrespective of whether you're wanting to protect yourself as best you can because shit happens, right? There are young people who have died from COVID and they're very healthy. So yeah. we don't know exactly what's going on there. But so shit can happen, but to give ourselves the best chances to respond to a pathogen, we want certain things to be, be there. But that's also the case if you want to hopefully, we think at least, minimize any adverse events from the vaccine or potentially any adverse events in, in terms of a long COVID type situation. Uh, no, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, just in terms of, I know you do a lot of stuff. So you were all around weightlifting world champ. You're author of eight books. Uh, you, you know, you've got different businesses, different things. What, what, what do you enjoy doing most? And, and yeah. Yeah, what do you enjoy doing most? Talking to you, brother. That's the highlight oh, yeah. of my day. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, in terms of all your skills and you know, like the, what part of your, your job and career do you enjoy doing most? It's a good question because I, if, if it was, if it's the question of what I do and what aspect of what I do do I enjoy most, it's it's got to be, it's got to be teaching. You know, I love to um, to teach and to spend time with my my students. Um, to create content for them, you know, and I think a lot of the sort of background to that is that I, I really like to, to help to simplify things for people, to make them a, a lot clearer because nutrition science and health science in general can become quite complicated. There, there's a lot of moving parts involved yeah. and it's not as simple as just reducing down to one thing, you know, and of course in the research, we have to reduce down to one thing. To, to study it. So we might reduce down to the, for example, the impact of this particular thing on this particular health marker. And so we study it in comparison to a placebo and then see what happens. But obviously that's not health. That's just one component of health that is in a myriad of other things. So I think what I enjoy most is to, to look at the science and then try and make that translatable for people, whether that be end users or for my students who are you know going to go on and become great practitioners to then go out and be able to give really clear and effective health advice to other people yeah. nice and what's the the vision going forward i guess with covid sort of messed things up a little bit but yeah the the vision going forward for your business and everything well to some degree for us you know it's business as usual we our our focus is on the institute you know where we train other practitioners. Um, so we train people to, to be nutritionists. And um, really the long-term vision is to continue to do that in the best way we can, mm. but also through that and through a lot of the other you know, work that I do, whether it be speaking, whether it be writing, to also, I, I hope, have people start to reevaluate their ideas of health and their ideas of health and performance. Because I'll put it this way, before the pandemic, I was rolling out a, a talk at a number of conferences, you know, a little bit 
different at each conference, obviously. I always modify it to the, the audience. But a lot of the theme I was talking about was this idea that we need to go beyond health. Because one of the, the challenges we have at the moment is people have very arbitrary ideas of health, right? So if you ask someone, what's your idea of health? Often they're immediately thinking about extrinsic things and they start to gravitate towards thinking about some influencer or some ideal that they see through the media or social media. And so when I then ask people, well, if you could achieve that idea that you've created in your mind of what health is, if you could achieve that with the snap of your fingers, would you be happy? And most people say, when they reflect on it, they say, well, I probably wouldn't actually. I don't think I would be happy. So the question is, why is that? Well, it's because that doesn't cut through to what's most important for people. Mm. When people start to think about why they want to be healthy or why they want to pursue anything, there are far more evocative things that, that will come up. You know, why do you want to be healthy? Well, I want more energy. Why do you want more energy? I want to be more productive at work. Well, why do you want to be more productive at work? That's a good point. Yeah, well, maybe because I, I love what I do and it helps me to serve other people. And now we're actually getting something evocative, right? Or like, why do you want to have more energy? Well, that's because when the day ends, the work day ends, I want to still have enough energy to go home and be a good partner or, you know, pick up my kids or, you know, have fun with them, whatever. Those are the things that really start to cut through. Mm. I think when people start to think about that, it changes their whole perspective on how they achieve health. And then what health means even in a more broad sense, right? And I think this is the stuff that's critically important for us to be thinking about and talking about. Because if I were an educator who was just focused on, hey, everyone, this is the way to eat, right? Which is probably bullshit anyway, because there's no one way to eat, right? But if I say, this is the way we eat, right? And then you'll be healthy and then you'll be happy. It's kind of like, eh, you're missing a few steps there. You know, I think it's way more important for us to really start to reevaluate what we do and how we live in this world so that we can all be a, a lot better for ourselves, but more importantly, a lot better to other people. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember like it really relates, you know, resonates with when I first started training people and I was giving them some like basic things. Yeah, I was pretty much into the low, lower carb. I was in, I was at CrossFit, you know, obviously. So I was along the paleo uh, zone sort of lines, guidelines sort of thing. And people wasn't like, um, getting the results and that, like it didn't occur to me until later on that there's all these other things that you were just talking about like stress and sleep and these different things that can affect us and because me being so obsessed with it I just couldn't really see why people wasn't getting you know I was trying to but it wasn't until years later that you know now that I you know have kids and work and stressed and all I'm like ah oh, now I know why it was so hard for people and how you know being through a bit of life I was pretty young back then you know just had a bit of my yeah. struggles and I you know had ups and downs and all sort of stuff and and now I'm like oh you know and I've sort of my weight hasn't been where it's wanted to be you know the last three years as well you know I've struggled with it a bit so I guess I've developed an empathy and understanding um of you know what people are going through more you know and and that they were struggling because it is, could have been multiple reasons but i just didn't understand at the time you know oh yeah i mean life is you know it's such a complex thing because there's so many moving parts to it mm. and it's like you say it's not until you actually experience things yourself that you can, can really relate to the experiences of other people yeah. and you know hopefully the more we experience in life the more we can then translate that even to experiences that we haven't had you know we can sort of begin to think, well, you know, 
I felt this particular way because of these things that are going on for me. And so maybe these other things which I haven't experienced are also impacting people in a particular way. So at least I can relate to it more. Mm. You know, and I think we need to be um, a lot more gentle with ourselves and gentle with other people. Um, and, and also just, you know, get out of our own way and get out of other people's way. Yeah. We don't always need to be campaigning on social media as if the, the idea is that everyone sees us as being right. Um, because what's the point? You know, the, the point would be, I, I think for most people, they get more, more followers and then they're held up on a higher platform. But at the end of the day, who, who cares? Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if it's contributing to the echo chamber within which people are being shitty to one another, then I don't want to be held up on a higher platform in that place. Yeah, 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 <laughs> sure. Uh, man, I'm always interested in people with the do, you know, doing a lot and achieving a lot. Uh, what like routines, habits that you have each day that they see you up, you know, for good, good days? Yeah, it's a good question because I am very much a routine type person. Um, I find that I need to create structures in my life so that I feel free, and that seems like a contradiction, but. I, I feel out of control if I don't have certain instructions and then I don't feel free because mm. I think, you know, having that control um, is really critical for that. So, yeah, I do, I do have certain routines. And so, I mean, I can run through a day. It's pretty much the, the same each day. I wake up in the morning. I have um, a couple of glasses of water. First thing I train at home. We've got a really good garage gym here. So I just, go straight down and train at the moment. That's uh, basically every second day lifting and on the off days I do uh, yoga hmm. and um, my training pretty much involves, I do full body workouts. I tend to focus on just the basics. Um, so I've got a comp coming up in December. So I'm focusing on the lifts for that at the moment. So uh, reflex clean and press and hack lifts, but doing assistance work outside of that. Um, you know, I do a lot of floor pressing. I do a lot of overhead pressing. I do a lot of, you know, various deadlift variations. Um, obviously, the, the old old school lifts, one-arm snatches and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I basically train the full body. Um, like I say, alternating that with yoga. Um, straight after training, I have a big protein shake. And the reason is not because you need a shake after training. You know, that that's kind of a myth if you get enough protein over your day. But the reason that I have a protein shake straight after training is because if I don't, I tend to undershoot my protein targets each and every day. Mm. So I have it really because it's a, it's almost like a behavioral trigger, right? I know when I finish training, the next thing I do is knock back some water. Then I have a protein shake that really helps me to get above my protein threshold for the day. Plus I'm, having a big protein serve in the morning is probably a good thing. How anyway. much are you aiming for after that, after your workout? About 60 grams. 60, yeah, yeah. Oops, a few skips. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then I'm, I'm basically into work. I, I always write first thing. Um, and that's mainly because outside of that physical stuff, which is critically important for, for me and my physical and mental well-being, uh, I am a big fan of that idea, kind of like we talked about with training, that if it's worth doing, do it every day. And if it's the most important thing, do it first, right? right? And for me, the most important thing is to, to create content, um, you know, for my members or for books or whatever. So I write first thing in the morning. Um through the day, I, I take a lot of breaks because I, I think that taking breaks and working really hyper productively during your 
do your work blocks is the, the best way to, or the most efficient way to, to do your work. Mm. So I'll work for sort of 25 minute blocks and then have a five minute break. Um, during those breaks, I typically stretch. I stretch out my hip flexors and whatnot, yeah. uh, which I found, have found has been really awesome for my back. Um, and then I try to knock off. So I, I you know, I, I have um, protein shake after training. I have lunch. Then I have a protein shake when I finish work as well. And I finish work typically around 3 p.m. I try not to work too much in any given day because I'd rather work hyperproductively and then just put it all aside and spend time with, you know, my, my partner and our little boy and stuff like that. Um, so I knock off around three and then for the rest of the day, I'm just doing the family stuff. Awesome. Um, yeah. Doing gardening, doing bonsai still. Yeah. No, no I love it. Eh? It's the old uh, discipline equals freedom type of thing. eh? Exactly. And I'm a big fan of Jocko Willink. You know, I think he's very misunderstood because people see him as being this sort of hyper masculine sort of figure. But at the end of the day, yeah, the, the ideas and discipline equals freedom or um, that, that concept of um, uh, the, the book escapes me now. The, the, what's the, the um, book you wrote with Leif oh. Babin? Is there something about accountability? He's, he's all accountability, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Extreme ownership. Extreme, that's right, yeah. yeah. Can't believe that I forgot that. Yeah. Um, but you know that that concept of extreme ownership, I think, is is a really good concept for people to explore because the, the I think the key thing is that people think that it's all about like overriding natural tendencies or this sort of libertarian idea that well anyone can do it, which is not the the point. You know, not everyone can do everything, and we we recognise that people have advantage and disadvantage. That's obviously key to critical thinking. I think. The more important aspect of it, though, is that it may not be your fault, but irrespective, the situations that are within your life are your responsibility. And it's basically a stoic philosophy, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's sort of that, that idea of, I know it's been summarized into the obstacle is the way, but um, the, the actual original quote is what, what stands in the way becomes the way, mm. right? That's not to say that something that comes up it may not, you know, it might be a shitty thing or it might be something that is a genetic thing that you have or it might be something that results from underprivilege. And on a macro level in society, we want to start to break down those factors that cause advantage and disadvantage for different people. We should all be starting from, you know, the same starting blocks, but we're not. Irrespective, while we're trying to break down those barriers on a societal level, on a personal level, we need to take responsibility for just life as it is and every step along that path. So yeah, I'm a big, um, big fan of that stuff. One thing I didn't say as well in, in terms of my daily routine is that at the moment it's not happening, but um, I've for a long time now, 12 years, I've been a catch wrestling uh, and jujitsu practitioner. So that would usually be my sort of alternate day as well. So I'd lift on one day and then do jujitsu the following. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Really good balance theory. Now, thanks, thanks for sharing that, eh? It was, uh, yeah, appreciate that. Man, we'll have to, um, man, I want to be respectful of your time and everything. I, and just another thing to mention, um, like even just for the listener, even when I was talking to, to Cliff trying to set this up, I was like, oh, can we do uh, Sunday? And Cliff was like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't do weekends, only uh, weekdays. So it's, you know, a testament to you sticking to your schedule and, you know, discipline, you know, uh, equals freedom. Pretty much, eh? So that's cool. Great example. Creating those boundaries, I think, is you know, is is really important, and I think it can be done in a very authentic 
and you know caring way because it's just straight up mm. and so when you approached me and said oh could you do sunday it's like well no i don't do sundays because that's like family day yeah um but you know i love getting on another time yeah and you know giving as much time as as we need for that so typically like for podcasts i set aside as much time as is required because i just dig chatting with people like yourself and just hashing out ideas and hopefully someone listening will will get something out of it <laughs> i remember um there's plenty in there plenty of things. i was speaking to it was years and years ago when i wrote my first book which um is now no longer available because it's pretty terrible um but you know you, you start <laughs> and you get better <laughs> but when i wrote my first book my good friend and mentor dr ian brooks uh, who at the time I think was New Zealand's biggest selling business author, he said, I know what you want to do with this because I gave him the draft to read over and he said, oh, you, you want to throw it in the bin? I was like, yeah, I definitely want to throw it in the bin. And he said, well, you, you've done all the work, you know, you've created this thing, you might as well put it out there. Even if that means you're not actually going to publish it, if you just put a staple in the corner and give it to some clients or whatever, you know, someone might get something out of it. Mm. And that changed my whole philosophy on on content to some degree, because I think when we put things out there, we want them to be hyper successful. And when they're not, it's seen as a failure. Mm. So for example, um, well, actually it's a really good example because Ian Brooks' son is my best friend who is the bassist in Like a Storm. You may not have heard of them, but Like a Storm are New Zealand's most successful hard rock act of all time. and so they're very successful in the States and they live up there and they, they tour and whatnot. Now, if you're a musician, a gigging musician, and you make a really good living from it, but you're not U2 or, you know, something like that, you're not a hyper, hyper successful band. A lot of people sort of have this mentality, oh, when are you going to get a real job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Same makes no art, sense. Artists yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you're making a living from it, wouldn't you rather be making a living doing something you love, then be, just because you haven't been hyper successful and you're not known in every living room throughout the world to then go and get a job at a cafe making coffees or whatever. Like that makes no sense, but we tend to devolve to this idea that you're either hyper successful or you're not. And so when Ian said that to me about the book, you know, someone might get something out of it. That became my guiding philosophy for everything I put out, right? It doesn't matter if, 10 people read it or a million people read it. If one person somewhere in the world gets something out of it and it helps them in in any way, then it's a success, Mm. right? That's all that we really need. And so, um, you know, I I published that book and then I did another one a little bit later. I've obviously done a a few since then, but it was really cool. The, one of the first bits of feedback I got was from a, a doctor. I think it was a doctor in South Africa. And he messaged me and said, um, you know, I read your book and it reminded me why I'm a doctor. You know, I had drifted and, and I was just doing it for the money and stuff like that. But it reminded me that I'm here to, to be of service to other people. Mm. And that was like the, the coolest thing. All right. I, I didn't even, I don't actually know, for example, how many copies of books I've sold. I have a rough idea, but I don't really know. And I, I stopped keeping track. I've never really kept track because I don't care. Yeah. You just put stuff out there and if people dig it, they dig it. And if they don't, that's cool too. Yeah. No, no, I love it. I love it. That's yeah, that's uh that's what my my auntie taught me as well as a kid just helping people and doing different things like organizing events and different things like that and always hoping that people would come. And she was always like, 
you know, if one person comes and you you help them, then it's all worth it type of thing. So similar to, to your journey. And yeah, yeah. even though I would like, you know, my things to go a bit better than that, um, you know, I sort of, I've kept that in the back of my mind every time I do anything or put anything out there. So no, nah, I love that. I love that thought. Eh? Yeah. Um, this is usually my last question, but since you're sort of touching on it, what, what is your like definition of success in a way? You sort of talked about it a little bit there, but yeah. Is that... It's a really good question because I think if I think my definition of success is probably a little bit different to most people's. I think it's that if if in the moment we can be in the day in the the mundane moments in life, if we can be happy, comfortable, relaxed, you know, then that's success. Mm. Because I think you know we we're so driven by stimulation in the modern world. You know, we're driven by highly emotive things, whether it comes through from media or even, you know, hyper palatable foods or hyper this, hyper that. Yeah. We, we end up getting on that cascade where we just need more and more. We need more stimulation. Yeah. And I've often talked about this with people using the analogy that you could be in, inside watching Netflix and watching something really gripping, which is cool. You know, I, I do that. We yeah. all do that. But you could be watching something really gripping on Netflix versus going outside and sitting in your garden and, and watching a stick insect on a leaf. Neither one is objectively more desirable than the other. You know, you couldn't quantify something and say, well, yeah, watching Netflix is objectively more desirable because blah, blah, blah. You couldn't say that, right? But most people would would almost revile the idea of just sitting in stillness and watching something in nature, right? But I think if you can begin to ask yourself, what am I doing right now? And be fully immersed in it, you know, being mindful and, and enjoying that moment for what it is. And, and therefore beginning to find that, that basic level of joy in every breaking moment, I mean, that's success, mm. right? Yeah. And it means you become as a person on a psychological and spiritual level, way more resilient too. Because then, although stuff is cool, like I love watching a doco on Netflix, but I equally love sitting in the garden looking at that bug, right? Yeah. You've got way more shit that is out there for you rather than always having to have the next thing, the most hyper-palatable thing, the fastest car, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 it's cool. It's a good, uh, really good way of putting it. Um, if greatest greatest lesson that your parents taught you, I guess your mom and your dad separately, greatest lesson? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, a really good question. I think the the main thing that I've always well, there, there's two things really. I think the first thing that comes to mind from my old man is that he always said, "I don't care what you do, just just be the best." I don't think he actually meant necessarily be, you have to be the best otherwise you're a failure yeah it's just like enjoy what you're doing strive to be really good at things like don't accept just banal like mundane stuff or don't do things because other people expect it you know my old man's a sparky he's an electrician right and a lot of people look down on tradies as if there's somehow some greater virtue in being a doctor or a lawyer. And I think that's just complete bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Because you can be 
great in whatever you do and you can get you know an enormous amount of satisfaction from it you also can serve people and give them joy through whatever you do so I think that was a really good lesson from him um, and from my mum it was a little bit different because I think a lot of my I was going to say a lot of my spiritual foundation came from my mum but that's probably not 100% correct because my, my old man introduced me to yoga when I was like three years old and stuff now he wasn't a yogi per se he got into yoga because he was into long distance running. He was into running marathons and stuff. And he just thought, oh, this looks good for flexibility. So he started doing it for that reason. Again, this is a long time ago. This is back in the late 70s, early 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and through that, he started becoming more interested in the philosophy behind it, Eastern philosophy and things like that. So there, there's some degree of sort of spiritual foundation came from there as well. But my mum was really formative for this stuff. Uh, and the, the, the main reason was that she was a devout Christian, right? But she was completely non-conversional. So as a good example of that, my sister and I weren't baptized, hmm. right? Because mom and dad agreed that while she was Christian, he was atheist, they would let us choose our own path, right? right? And, and she also believed that despite her faith being Christian, if I were of another faith, then so long as I was a good person, it's all the same. Right, right. right? So it doesn't really matter. So because of that, uh, it was really, it was a really nice example to have someone who was so sure in their own faith and, and actually lived it, right? Really lived being a, a good, open-hearted, compassionate Christian, but not feel any sort of um, pressure to be there just to find my own path. And so uh, I know that one of the things we had previously discussed on chat is some of the books that were influential for me. Mm. As a really good example, my mom bought me um, my first books on Eastern philosophy, which became really influential for me. She bought me a book called Talking Zen by Alan Watts. And then other books on Hindu philosophy and you know other Buddhist philosophy and things like that. And that became my foundation. So I was a practicing Buddhist from probably my early teens all the way up till, you know, relatively recently, I don't really consider myself a Buddhist or anything else at all anymore, but that was a lot of my foundation. And that's where a lot of my practices came that helped me in life, like meditation, mindfulness, you know, mindfulness of breath and yoga, you know, from being exposed to that from, from my dad early on. So really it was just about that, um, that idea of, of, I mean, I'm rambling now, but I guess it was just the idea of being a good person and not placing your judgments or, or expectations on other people. Like stick to your knitting and do your own spiritual yeah. shit. Yeah. I think that's a great message to spread at, at the moment, uh, especially with everyone having their uh, strong opinions. and. <laughs> well, unfortunately, because of the way media has evolved, everything's going to be very polar. Mm. You know, you're either for something or against something. Yeah, you see yeah. it now with, with COVID, right? You're either for everything. You're for masks, you're for vaccination, you know, you're for lockdowns, or you're against all of those things. Whereas I think if, if, if most people took a step back and evaluated things, they would understand that there's room for discussion. You know, I, I had, um, for example, Simon Thornley on my podcast a couple of times Simon's a really good friend of mine. We're 
co-authors on a number of scientific papers and he was the tertiary supervisor for my PhD. So we're really close, right? I, you know, we're, we're as close as one can be in sort of that academic setting. And I really like Simon. Uh, he has some very different opinions to me on the COVID situation now. You know, as far as I know, and I don't want to misrepresent him, people can look him up if they want, but he is against uh, mask mandates. Uh, he's very skeptical of the efficacy of the vaccine, um, and he's against lockdowns. Now, I don't share those views, but I, I certainly think it's incredibly interesting to talk to someone who has a lot of knowledge in the areas of biostatistics and epidemiology, who can give very sound data-backed rationale for his ideas, mm. Mm. even though I'll disagree with him based on my interpretation of the evidence. Mm. And I think we need a lot more of that where people are being more pragmatic. You know, it's not black and white. It's not binary. There's a lot of nuance. There are certain things that we need to be looking at. And one of the things we need to be looking at in this whole thing, and again, I know we're probably getting tangential here, <laughs> but within, it's not just COVID. It's life in general. One of the things we need to be looking at is how do we begin to live better? Because people are getting more depressed. Rates of mental illness are going up consistently over time. We know that a lot of the cofactors of poorer mental health through time are because of diet, they're because of lifestyle, they're because of media, they're because of sedentarism, they're because of the things that we've created within our societies and civilization. So if we're going to properly address that, and we're going to properly address health in general, and more importantly, we're not going to leave it there. You know, we can't just leave it at this idea of health. If we're only about preserving health, that means we're always looking at pathologies. How do we get people well enough again to become cogs in the machine and just be on the treadmill of society. Well, that's not enough. Yeah. From my point of view, that's bullshit because we need to be looking at what ha helps people to thrive, like what helps people to be more creative and passionate and purposeful. We need more of those people in the world because that's going to help us to transcend these big problems we have in the world. Mm. Those are the people who are going to come up with solutions. So how do we begin to do that? And that's a big question because then people start to evaluate not just rearranging the deck, uh, the deck chairs on the Titanic, not just about little fine tuning we can do to our health or to the social system or to the economy. It's like, well, maybe we need much bigger changes to the way we live than just that stuff. And maybe the entire socioeconomic model that we predicate everything on needs to go through some massive changes. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was one of those ones that would wasn't really open. I, I'm a Christian. I grew up Catholic, and then became a Christian, and I wasn't really open to other stuff. And now, although I I like to hear and connect, and you know, with every type of person, every walk of life, I still believe in what I believe in, but I'm open to like whatever, you know, hearing and get along and all that sort of stuff. Like I even put on, like I put on my story, um, you know, I got double vaxxed. I got, but you know, if you're not, if you're anti-vaxxed, we can still be friends, you know, that's yeah. that type of thing. So it's, it's sort of similar to what you're saying. Like, you know, we can all have different views and, and beliefs and things like that, but still, still be at peace and, and get along fine. You know? 
And we, we need to approach things again gently because you know what it's like if someone holds a different view and you come out and just attack that person, it doesn't help them change no. their view or, or it doesn't help them to understand your point of view. They just become entrenched in their own view. Yeah. And then we're just butting heads. Yeah. You know, and so when we approach, and the other thing is we, we can't be so arrogant to think that our opinions are right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, and I would always say that, like, I believe based on the evidence that this is the way to go. But I'm not going to say to someone, I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong. Mm. Because there are going to be things that I'm saying that are incorrect. And there are going to be, even if we disagree with someone to the nth degree, there are going to be things that they have done that are good. You know, I'm, it's well known that I wasn't a fan of Donald Trump and the presidency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I were to say that everything he did while he was president was, was bad, that would be incorrect. There was, there, were legis- there was legislation that was passed during his tenure that was positive. There was also a lot of negative stuff. Now, people would disagree on the ratios therein, but, you know, there, there's no room for absolutism because absolutism is just, it's a trap. You know, it's a trap that we get drawn into where we think that I'm right, this other person's wrong, you know, or I'm good and they're bad. And we do it all the time with, you know, with demonizing things. Mm. I think it's a really interesting thing. We're so compelled to watching like crime docos, you know, crime docos are like the biggest genre on Netflix, right? And what often happens with that is we're looking to try and see how different the person is. And then we use vernacular around that. They're a monster. They're not a monster. They're a person. Yeah. And the reason that they have acted in the way they act is because of a whole range of things, ranging from societal imperatives through to how they were treated. You know, maybe there was some genetic component. There's all these things, but they're not a monster. They're a human. We need to be very aware of that because it's not monsters in the dark coming to get us. If there, are, if there are dangers in the modern world, it's because of humans and the way that humans are and the way that we've developed a society that rewards greed and accumulation. Yeah. And so it's not about monsters. It's about the, the, the stuff that we all hold within us, you know? Yeah. And so we've got to reevaluate that. Yeah. Yeah, when you hear some of the backstories on people who are deemed as monsters, you realize like how traumatic their upbringing or things that they've been through is and you're like, oh, that's why they're they're seen as as monsters. But yeah, you know, it was like a whole big thing before the thing that they did or believed or whatever you know whatever they done. It, it was the accumulation there. Eh? And we're all. I think we all have to to have some. We all have some culpability in that. Hmm. You know, let's say we if we watch a documentary about you know a serial killer. I play with the idea that maybe in some in some weird way, deep down, we kind of want that stuff to occur because it titillates us. Yeah. Right? Is there some fractal sort of way that that influences the way the world is? I don't know, but it's, it's certainly a concept to be aware of. Mm. You know, and when we think about that, you know, I think we can start to, yeah, just, just reassess how we treat people overall and how we treat people on a societal level. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a big fan, for example, of the death penalty, mainly because it's not economically 
viable. It's actually cheaper to put someone in prison for life than it is to um, go through the process of killing them usually. But outside of that, I wonder, you know, while we need to probably separate some people from the rest of us because they're going to harm people, I don't necessarily think we should punish either because what do we become when we're punishing someone? Now, you can take a step back from that as well. And people out there will be saying, oh, I'm a bleeding heart and whatever, you know, of course we need to punish people. But if we also consider that punishment is actually a very poor, um, it, it, it's, it's very poor at stopping people from doing bad things, right? The, the carrot and the stick are not actually very good. Hmm. The biggest thing that helps people to do things that are better for other people is simply societal pressure, right? Having the societal pressure that to, to do the right thing, but also to have the environment around them that helps them to be better people overall. Hmm. If the environment sucks and the social pressure is not there and people feel ostracized and the only thing that's prohibiting them from doing it is that if they get caught, they'll be punished severely, that's not actually a very good um, prohibitor of their actions. And there's good research on that. A really good book, if you're interested in it, is a book called uh, Drive by, uh, who's it by? Daniel Pink, oh, which looks at, it looks at why people are motivated to do certain things. And he, in it, he speaks to a lot of the research, which has looked at, you know, people being punished, for example, for doing certain things. And it doesn't really stop them doing it, yeah. especially when it's a financial punishment. Mm. So, you know, you punish someone financially. So you've got a charge for doing something wrong. A lot of people will just be like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll pay. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> so uh, just a couple more questions. And man, I'd love, I'd love to do this again. We haven't even touched on like training and your books and all that sort of stuff, but a couple more just uh, keep within some sort of time and respect your time. <laughs> <laughs> um, just if you could put a message on a billboard uh, for everyone to see on the way to work or school or wherever they're going, what, what message would you put on the billboard? That's a really good question. And I, I don't know if this is the, the, the best thing, but I was having a little think about this. And I really like the idea of reminding ourselves, what, what am I doing right now? Right. So if I had a billboard I'd put on it, what are you doing right now? That probably doesn't mean a lot to people. But if you ask yourself, what am I doing right now? Yeah. And then reconnect to what it actually is. I think there's a greater tendency that will be in the moment. Right. And I think that that idea originally comes from, I mean, that the idea, what am I doing right now, comes through meditation, you know, for millennia, people have been asking themselves that. But I think it was also in um, Zorba the Greek, he asked themselves, what, you know, what am I doing right now in order to be in the moment of what it is? I think if people can do that and ask themselves, what am I doing right now? And if, if you're driving your car, drive your car. Be mindful of what's going on, you know, feel it, experience it, experience yeah. the breaking moments and joy in doing it. What am I doing right now? I'm eating this burger. Well, bloody enjoy it. You know, don't just zone out and do something else because you would have then finished it. It's like, oh, where did that go? Yeah. You haven't enjoyed the burger. Yeah. No, that's a great thing to do throughout the day. Every um, every time we do something, yeah, it brings us back back to the present. So oh, that's a great one. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I talked about it a lot when I um I wrote a book of years ago called time rich cash optional and it was on i did a few radio slots based on it because it was relatively popular and um that's what i'd often say when the the radio djs would say oh, is there a message you know, one <laughs> message you could pull out of the book and i'd say yeah, you know ask yourself what are you doing right now 
and yeah. everyone was pretty much just like what like they didn't quite get what i was yeah. saying yeah um, but it really is just about drawing attention back to the moment and enjoying it because it's the, it's all we got you know all we have is the moment now yeah it's a, it's a tough one uh one of the one the 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 book that put me onto that was the Peaceful Warrior, the Way of the Peaceful Warrior, Dan Millman. Oh yeah, Dan Millman, yeah. And then uh, there's the Eckhart, the Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. These, these are sort of the ones that, but it's it's an ongoing battle. You know, I'll I'll be good, and then not you know, forget about it, and then you know something will happen, and then try to bring myself back to the the present. But that's a good that's a good mantra to have. To what am I doing now, sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah I like that, and. And just the last, oh, just last question uh, before we, we sort of uh, see where you're, where you're up to and stuff like that, projects, is just, uh, yeah, a book that's had, I know you've, you've written a bunch of books, but maybe a book or that comes to mind, maybe recently or overall, that's had a massive impact on your life. Yeah, so I mentioned one earlier, um, and it's not the one I'm actually going to talk about, but I mentioned one earlier uh, called Talking Zen, which was the first book I I had and read around um, the concept of Zen Buddhism, which became sort of, I guess, my spiritual bedrock for a long time. All right. That was sort of like your first book that, yeah. It was really formative yeah. back when I was young. I mean, there's lots of books that have been really formative. I, I read a lot. You know, I read a, a, about a novel a week mm. and um, probably a similar amount of nonfiction as well. So I, I read a, a huge amount just because I love it, right? Um, but a book that I've read recently that has been really influential was uh, Chris Ryan's Civilized to Death. Civilized to Death, all right. Yeah, and the, the reason being that, okay, so there's another book called um, The Better, Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker. And that had been an influential book for me, it still is. And in that book, he basically makes, in The um, Better Angels of Our Nature, Stephen Pinker makes the the point that we live in the safest, most comfortable time in history, mm. which is probably true. It's probably fair to say that if we're only talking about history in the typical sense, not prehistory. But when we consider the prehistory, so pre-civilization, you know, pre-agrarian culture and things like that. So pre that sedentarism of congregating together with domestic animals and lots of people and things like that, when we consider that that time frame is you know at least 190,000 years, whereas civilization, we're talking about the last 10,000 years. We need to ask, well, what about preceding civilization? Were we happier and healthier then? And the evidence seems to suggest that we are, that we were. So in Civilized to Death, he makes the point that it's actually civilization itself and the idea of perpetual progress, which has caused and continues to cause a lot of our modern day problems now he doesn't offer any solutions which i find really interesting um but also I, I think that's his mandate is just to sort of present an interesting idea um so one of the things that i think about quite a lot as a result of that book is how can we bring into our modern lives maybe some of the the aspects of pre-agrarian so you know hunter-gathering foraging peoples that can help us to live better now, uh, not just in terms of, you know, following a paleo diet or whatever, because that's not important. I'm not talking about, you know, diet related stuff or health. I'm talking about the way we actually live and the way we treat other people so that we can be happier. Mm. Right. And I think that's a really, really interesting book for people to read 
um, to, to understand a little bit more about our evolution as human beings and how civilization and the way we live now is really just a, a, a blip in the timeline when we consider that massive amount of time beforehand. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really good point. I read somewhere that, you know, back in the days, if, if my father was a blacksmith, I'd be a blacksmith. Oh. If my, you know, or my mom was this or that, you would be that. But now, like, we have all the options in the world. Hey, we can do whatever you want. We can travel. Or not right now, but usually, you know, planes and different things. Boys, you do have to get on ships or walk across the land. You know, there's a lot of obstacles. And you usually, generally, what if you're in the army, you know, you have to stay in the army, serve your commander. Like, now, you know, you sort of, you can do anything. Yeah. It's, and we have, a, you know, we have a lot of choices. And I, I guess the... The, the interesting thing about choice conundrum is it doesn't make us happier. Mm. You know, so although we probably are still better off than we would have been, say, back in those days in the you know, Middle Ages or maybe in you know, Victorian England where you might have been working in a factory under really abhorrent conditions and you might have had a really short lifespan because of that, uh, when we go even further back and we're looking at foraging groups, you know, with resource abundance around them because it's a bit of a myth that you know we were always starving and you know fighting one another and stuff like that it probably wasn't you know people were, were typically pretty egalitarian generous they were free right and and it, it's fairly well accepted that people's health and happiness declined as soon as we started to congregate together because once we started to congregate together in bigger groups and we based our agriculture around grains that we could accumulate and things like that and store. Once we started accumulating and storing things, obviously people want to be, want to have ownership of the stored stuff. And then you start to get hierarchies because, hey, I'm the king. I've got this ability to manipulate other people to band around me. And I'm going to get the strongest people to band around me so that they can suppress all the others so that I can have ownership of this stuff. And then I dictate how it's going to be spent. You know, whereas in a foraging band it wouldn't have flown right because that would have been contrary to the good of the, the group cliff uh, i'd love to do this again in the future there's a bunch of other topics that we haven't hit on and that but um I likewise just, man yeah just to wrap it up is there or anything you're working on and where can people find you see what you're up to yeah so um like i mentioned earlier i'm, I'm still working on various research projects um a few of which i kind of mentioned, um, but people can find out about me at either cliffharvey.com or our Nutrition and Health Institute. We train uh, people how to be health coaches, nutrition coaches, sports nutritionists, and clinical nutritionists, and that's at holisticperformance.institute. Yeah. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate your time and insights and, and sharing so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Cliff. Awesome, brother. My pleasure.